Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 25. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 25. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. So we got another fantastic email from Anna. Actually, it's it's kind of turned into a, somewhat of a conversation, which has been super helpful and, and thought-provoking to us. Hopefully the same for Anna. I think she said that it has been. And so she posed a really interesting question to Greg, and it, it's... A similar question that I think I had in episode number five, which was where we, I was kind of pondering, how could all these people have this five-star experience, or how, the, how could people give Not a Fan by Kyle Eidelman five stars on Amazon, and yet Greg and I are giving it zero stars, and what does all this mean? How can both of us be right and all that? So she raised the question of what – we were also discussing – um Eldridge, which what's Eldridge's first name? John Eldridge. I think it's it's John Eldridge. Okay, was, I think so in his big book is the, Wild at Heart. And pre, and before that, I think the Sacred Romance. So, topic of Eldridge came up, and uh, what do we think of of his works? And so Anna raised the question. Okay, so what do you do? Like, what do you do with? Someone like Kyle Eidelman, do you think he's a Christian? I would assume that you do. I'm I'm paraphrasing because I don't have her uh, email in front of me. How could he write this book as a Christian and yet it missed the mark? I don't feel like I'm saying that very well. But what I'm trying to lead into here is the response that you wrote, Greg, that I think kind of fleshes out what we're trying to do on this whole podcast. Well, why don't I read, I mean, just three sentences out of her, four sentences out of her email. Do it. Okay. And I'm not going to add any context. We can do that more. But, um, you know, we've read a couple of uh, Anna's contributions, and, and they're big contributions. We value um, this type of feedback, and, and Anna's in particular, because she's just been so consistent and so dedicated to it, and it's tremendously thoughtful. Um, but she, she writes here, and I quote her, But consider Kyle Eidelman for a moment. Do you doubt his authenticity or that his conversion is genuine? Do you not feel that the same spirit that is, in work, that is working in your heart is also working in his? Perhaps his approach slash personal theology is incomplete and or inaccurate in some places, but does this mean he can't offer the Christian community something of value? Awesome and question. Guess, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Totally great question. I know. And you know, I, 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 got, that, I got the email this morning and I started reading through it and I, I just... I had some other stuff on my plate. I just had to shelve it. I thought, this is too important. This is so good. So I, you know, the nice thing about these inter- interactions with Anna, um, unlike, say, a blog post. So on my blog, I aim for 650 words. And I know that, you know, although John and I are podcasting for sometimes these episodes, maybe slightly over an hour, we might have 65 minutes. Um, it's still different than having a long stretch of text where you can really tighten stuff up put it together and just really make it comprehensive and yet also pretty articulate. So I was able to do that and I put up together a bunch of text and I'm just going to read the last three of the last four paragraphs. And this is some 
quoting what I wrote back to her. So what about Eldridge? What about Eidelman, Platt, or Chan? So that's John, Eld- John Eldridge, Kyle Eidelman, David Platt, Francis Chan. Do I doubt that they are Christians? I took the question to be rhetorical, but I'll answer it anyways. Of course not. Do I doubt they are sincere? Not in the least. Do I doubt that their books can offer value to Christians? Depending both on the book, so Francis Chan's Crazy Love seems much better than Kyle Eidemann's fan, not a fan, uh, in my opinion, for instance. But depending upon the book and the starting point of the individual, absolutely. So what's the problem? My problem in a nutshell is not that these books are utterly misleading or even necessarily inaccurate. My issue in reading them is that though some of them, those, those some may have many valid and valuable points, they all bear the orientation of an evangelical culture that, generally speaking, has accepted prioritizing truth over love, and they perpetuate that hierarchy. So by accepting this mis- misformulation, these books, like those of their liberal counterparts, who have prioritized love over truth. And, and we, we talked about this writer, uh, Greta Vosper. Greta Vosper is a great example of this in her book, With or Without God. It's love over truth, you know, and we've got the same type of problem. But what's going to happen is they're going to necessarily guide us less, less accurately than they should. So we get less of God, less of ourselves, less of the relationship between the two. And that for me is a very big deal. Anna wrote in her um, response that I'm responding to here, her letter, her email. She talked about John Eldridge. Uh, so I'm writing my last paragraph. You noted that Eldridge is a big thinker. So do I think that his thoughts are valuable? Certainly. My main question would be, what might his thoughts look like, look like if they were situated within a Christian culture that was deeply informed by the primacy and mutuality of love and truth? So instead of having a hierarchy where truth sits above love, having this kind of flexible relationship with two kind of co-central realities, love and truth working together. In terms of both human existence and divine character and nature. Indeed, that would be my best question for all the authors John and I have been considering. How would their particular insights be sharpened and in my view course corrected by a rich integration of text and life understanding and experience, God's truth and truth in general, with the love of God, like God loving me and me loving God in return, and love generally. That's what I'm looking for. And that's a problem that I have, is that these books take on the terms of the uh, culture around them. And I'm not talking like, this isn't uh, like a Christian, non-Christian thing. I'm saying literally within the Christian culture, there is an emphasis on, um, on the biblical text and the truth of that biblical text over and above the idea of the love of God that must be known through experience. Understanding the love of God is not being in love with God or feeling loved by God. It's understanding the love of God. Let's get those two things straight. I mean, that's so important. An intellectual comprehension of something is just that. It's not an experience. It's not a lived reality. And you know what? My very best way of understanding something experiential, you know, somebody says, oh, I stubbed my toe and it was so brutally painful. Well, you know, <laughs> up to, I think a year ago, I, I, I 
stubbed my toe and I, I broke it. And I had kind of forgotten just how painful that can be. Like it was when you're running in bare feet and you slam your foot into something, like say oh. a door jam, ah. you know, it, the pain was, it was just agonizing for so long. And then of course, you know, it's broken and I've got to kind of deal with this, you know, can't really splint a toe sort of thing. And what a hassle. But it's because I've experienced it that when someone else says it to me, I can understand it. And now if someone said to me, I, I, I broke this finger and blah, blah, blah. It's not as though if I hadn't broke that particular finger, I wouldn't be able to experience it. We do extrapolate related experiences one to another, right? But there is something about, in other words, I come from an abusive family. If that's my only context for love, and I'm reading in the Bible about God loving me, how on earth am I supposed to understand that love of God correctly if my only experiences are dysfunctional and abusive of that phenomena? I can't. It's not just going to like conjure. If people think that's the way the Holy Spirit works, I mean, it's not been my experience, and, and I've, I've not heard that from people, from Christians whose lives and, and sort of um, perspectives I find to be credible and, and uh, um, really well integrated. So why um, why is it that you think that tr- uh, truth gets va- gets valued over love? Why? What's driving? What's do you have any ideas or thoughts on what's driving it? Well, I mean, you had that point a little earlier, or we, we talked about this a little earlier. Where I guess if, if you, oh, if yeah, you don't agree, <laughs> yeah, go with that one. Yeah, I'll go with that one. So. Here's a little inside baseball. So we were <laughs> we were just talking before we started. We were gonna re- we were gonna do something totally different today, and then we got to talking about this. And then I was like, okay, let's just uh, let's just throw everything aside. Let's do this, and I'll patch in something that we recorded earlier. So I'm not gonna do that now. I'm just gonna say what I said earlier. It's a repeat, but nobody will know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so what I was reflecting on was. My experience of evangelical Christianity is there's a very high discomfort with the idea of both. It's either good or it's bad. It's either helpful or unhelpful. It's either sinful or pure. And so I I guess that I was, I didn't, I hadn't made the connection to this, but yeah, I guess my, what I was positing was that Maybe it's the discomfort with saying it's truth and love and and that they're it's not real I guess it's not real clean cut though. It's mushy. It's it's uh it's it's a little harder to pin down. And in my experience, if you can't pin it down, well that's kinda slippery and kinda suspect and almost probably want to distrust that as much as your emotions and your feelings. I'm just totally glowing here on the other end of the mic. Why's that? Because <laughs> you're dead on. I think what you've what you've hit on there. For me, if I was to generalize that phenomenon, I would say that's a discomfort with tension. Yeah, because because you've got you know there's that verse in the Bible that says that you know you have to be ready and able to give an accounting of your faith, and you've got to have it all laid out. You got to have it all ready to go and crystal clear and. <laughs> Hundred percent confident, not a shred of doubt. <laughs> but that in no way precludes the idea that there are tensions within human life and within biblical 
uh, uh, um, notions. Uh, <laughs> You're gonna get me so with... spun up on this episode. <laughs> no, because <laughs> even... no, because I'm being very. I'll I'll try to I'll try to to cue the sarcasm. So no, and I'm being sarcastic now. Like no, because you know the Bible is totally clear. You just read exactly what's there. There's no interpretation needed. You just read what's plainly there in front of you and just do it and live it and everything's fine. It's very crystal clear. We make this much harder than it needs to be. You know, and the funny thing to me is if you ask most most people if they think life is easy or hard, (laughs) they say it's hard and they're working every day to make it easier. So how come the Bible is just so darn easy, but life is so hard? Doesn't that seem wrong? Because God, it's all written from God. It's all from God. Well, then why do the people who uh, find the Bible to be easy to approach and who are Christians not find that their life is likewise easy? Wouldn't God want to do that for them? Doesn't God promise to make life... Uh, well, you know, some of them a- might say it is easy. I don't know. It's not easy for me. I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to say that. We should bring a few of them onto the podcast <laughs> with, a, with, a, with an agreement that, I mean, they can disagree with us as much as possible. Ah, pff, great, fantastic. Just stick around for three podcasts. <laughs> And my guess is that they're going to come away thinking not only life, but also their views of God are actually a little bit more involved and tricky and, what did you say, uh, uh, mushy <laughs> than they originally thought. What I see here is I see, I see a very large um, problem, or maybe a problem that, that, that is so broad that it's like the water and the fish. The fish doesn't see the water because... What do you mean water? It's, there's just no water. There's just what's around me. There's no distinction. In other words, a fish has nothing else to compare the water to. And I think what happens or what has been happening, um, in, you know, I'm probably broadly in Christian culture, but I'll focus a little more narrowly on evangelical culture. I think what's happening is that, A, we have this idea that tensions are bad things. We want to basically collapse them. We have two competing notions. Somebody's got to win. Like you said, we don't, we don't have two, we've got one. We want to come up with the one that's the best, that's the right one. But B, I think that comes out of a mentality within our churches about solving problems, like solving theological problems, not interpersonal problems. I'm all for that. But you know, an idea that things have to be and should be easy somehow. Somehow the Bible is easy and straightforward and God, it's, it just all works so, you know, nicely and has a little bow on it where life itself is so, you know, um, messy sometimes, a lot of times. And I think that it's the, we've, we've essentially never learned. It's like people who've never walked, try to get up and walk. Well, you're going to fall down. Your legs don't know, you don't know what to do. Your muscles have atrophied. You've never walked. And it's, it's, it's a phenomenon that I think essentially is, amounts to our churches have not taught us how to do this. We have never been taught or shown or it has never been modeled to us how to look at our faith in an integrated way with our existence to take the things which would play off of each other in uncomfortable ways for us and to say, you know what? I think there's a tension there that might need to be preserved and even more than that, that tension, it's not like I just can't get rid of it. Like it keeps popping up like a bad penny. It may actually be productive. 
It may lead us to better and further and richer understandings of who God is, who we are, and what the relationship between us should be. Boom. That is my deep hunch. Now, is that to say everything? You know, I'm not suggesting that, you know, if Christians have an issue with pornography, that there's a tension they need to maintain. Well, I'm sure there's some tension there, but there's, I mean, that's a different sort of thing. That's a way of being that puts us out of right relationship with God and necessarily with ourselves and with others. That's something to investigate, but it's it's something to investigate with an eye to overcome. But attention is not necessarily a problem that breaks our relationship with God, with ourselves, and with others. It may well be something that we yet have not yet fully understood. You know, like, uh, I don't know, we, we get our tonsils removed. We'll, 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 I don't know, will 100 years from now we figure out that actually keeping your tonsils helps you not have cancer? I don't know, it sounds kind of flaky. I'm just- <laughs> I'm just making it up, right? But we don't know what the t- – so people get them removed because they have some issues, you know, but maybe they're there for – and because we can't figure out why they're there, right? There's no purpose to having tonsils, but we have tonsils. Well, I was just thinking in kind of a meta way, the uh, the tension that Anna raised between like, okay, are these guys Christians or what do we do with this has kind of even driven this conversation, of oh yeah how how do you put that together in a way that makes sense yeah and i think that's that that is the project that is like in other words one of my favorite uh philosophers talks about the role of the researcher the researcher is not there to answer and this is a researcher in the humanities right so say in philosophy in theology um a researcher in the humanities is not there to answer questions, like to provide answers, but to formulate the best questions. In other words, to take us in the directions where we need to go. So I would say on the one hand, you know, against the idea that Christianity is easy, being in relationship with God is easy, and life is easy. No, none of those things are easy. But the hard part, the hard part that we want to avoid the hard part we want to really fix and solve is the notion, that it, well, the reality that there are so many possible ways of seeing this. We need people to be posing the right questions, to be taking us in the right directions so that we can be doing the hard work that really needs to be done, the hard work that really will help us not, you know, make all these things easy and better and, you know, like in the sense of all better but that will help us by directing us towards those ways of seeing the world, understanding ourselves, understanding God, and interrelating all of those things such that those relationships do essentially manifest what Jesus in the Gospel of John said that they should. I come to bring life and to bring it abundantly. That is what should characterize Christian being. And my wager is, you know, personally, I mean, I stake my life on this, you know, I, I, or I base it on this, and I'm orienting myself in these podcasts in this direction. Um, being able, one of the component parts, a huge component part to doing that is being able to recognize, one, tensions that are necessary to life, two, 
being okay with letting those tensions be there. And three, moving forward with an aim to making those tensions not just something I recognize or can live with, but finding the productive nature of that tension and allowing that to stimulate understanding, growth, relationship, and ultimately, in my mind, moving towards the furtherance of the coming of the kingdom of God. I think it's just that big. And so when it comes to authors, um, some of the authors we've been considering once again, um, where some of these, the, I guess what I would consider the primary tension between love and truth, that these things are co-central. They have a mutuality, right? They have a relationship to, towards each other and they have a priority. They stand above everything else. I'm not saying they sort of stand above God, but I'm saying that when we think about God, when we as human beings interact with God, it's going to come under two main headers, love and truth. Now, love we, may take off. Where do those come from? Because the thought that popped in my head about 10 minutes ago was, mm. you know, you've been hammering away on love and truth since the beginning. Sometimes I push you on it. Sometimes I don't. So today <laughs> I was just like, okay, well, how do we, why aren't there three? Why is it? Why aren't there four? Why are there these two? Or why isn't there just one? Like, wh- where? I mean, certainly these weren't love and truth weren't chosen arbitrarily. So, no. where do you get them? Where did you come up with them? Is it well, you your know, idea? I, who like who's who are the big thinkers, or who would who would be the big people behind this idea? Oh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna skirt that last question for now. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Because um, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth. Um, okay. I think there are big thinkers in both camps. Um, but not many thinkers in both camp in in the both. You're saying that- bring, yeah. The, I think the number of people that are that are mediating those two camps that are bringing them together well are few, quite few. Um, but let me talk about origins first of all. So where does that come from? It comes from, and we had a conversation about this many podcasts ago what felt like many podcasts ago. I, I, th- I think I thought we did. I feel like but, we did too. I can't remember the answer. <laughs> yeah, and I have a feeling that we're going to go forward with this and, you know, there'll be a level of greater satisfaction on my part, perhaps, and your part, perhaps, in terms of how I phrase it and for you, how I answer it. But um, I have also a feeling that we'll go forward doing this again. We're going to come back to this. So I'm not going to be too hung up on the fact that I'm not going to get it exactly the way I might want it. Um. I think it comes in two two places. One is my experiences of being a human being in the world, experiencing God. The other one is my experience of and my understandings from being someone who uh, is very dedicated towards researching the Bible and, and digging into the biblical text to understand them. So, you know, love is a... Love's a, love's a kind of easy one, right? You, you get that pretty easily in terms of the formulations in John where you talk about God is love. That, uh, these are the only substantives in the Bible. Well, um, if you read the, the New old, Testament, if you read the Old Testament, <laughs> it looks like God's on the warpath looking for something to kill. It's in some <laughs> of the passages. Oh, I see where you're going. Okay. Um, yeah. And I mean, we, have to kind of, we have to kind of reconcile those things, right? 
Um, so I hear what you're saying. That that's a big that's a big uh, that's an important point. If I if I kind of just you know hedge off that area, I'm happy to go there. But to get that's a fuller like seven sense podcasts of, probably. So yeah, we'll well, we'll come back to another time. Yeah. But just in terms of the, what the Bible is saying, a lot of people, and Augustine included, really kind of pointed to Exodus 3.14, um, which is a very slippery passage. And I, I'm not, I don't think I'm getting, I don't think I'm playing fast and loose there because, you know, I admit that Hebrew is a very flexible language, but I think Exodus 3.14 is is particularly flexible or slippery or hard to pin down. It's that whole, you know, Moses said, well, I don't know. I go to the the people of Israel and they say, "Who is this God, anyways? You know, what, what am I supposed to say?" And Exodus three fourteen is God saying, uh, "God replying to Moses saying, and this is the problem: <laughs> saying what exactly? Saying I am that I am. Could also be translated, I will be that I will be. I was that I was. I may be that I may be. Which is Richard Carney's version. Um, and Augustine." when he was writing, really focused on this as a sort of a kernel about who God is. He did that for a couple of reasons. Again, we, you know, you can't abstract yourself from your context. And Augustine's context was very much uh, in and uh, uh, surrounded by Neoplatonic thought. And for Plato, the idea of being and essence was huge. And so, um, you know, one way of responding to the Neoplatonic critics of Christianity was to say, well, we know a lot about being as Christians. And in fact, we know everything about being. We know that God is being itself. And this was a you know, way that ultimately uh, um, when God uh, – when, when, pardon me – when we're thinking about God uh, of creating, and this is part of that same conversation. And of course, it's also Augustine who's working with this idea. The other notion that the Neoplatonics would kind of have, have very much adhered to when they're thinking about – well, who is this God and what's the idea of divinity that you're proposing to me? Um, Plato in the Timaeus wrote, writes about, uh, you know, the divine is this sort of eternal, you know, all-powerful thing, entity. But the divine, alongside of the divine stands, stands this sort of um, primordial stuff out of which, say, the planet, like the earth and the, the stars and the sun are made. And that, that stuff isn't um, – and we've talked about this before that, – that stuff isn't uh, – sentient. Uh, I don't think there's any sense in which it's given, you know, uh, awareness and reason. Um, it, it lacks many of the qualities that, say, a god would. But uh, it, it does not lack timelessness. It, like God, is timeless, which in some senses puts them on par. And Augustine is, of course, quick to do that, to, to, to kind of, pardon me, to push away from that. And he would say, and this is where this whole idea of creation ex nihilo came out of. So again, I'm trying to situate these ideas in their original context, and they do come by way of sort of clearing some space for themselves. It's a table that in the intellectual philosophical world was really filled with the Neoplatonic thought. And in order to clear a bit of space to sit these ideas, put this on the table, give it some, you know, uh, a sturdy and respectable place from which to be understood, we had to clear away and distinguish it from uh, some of those Neoplatonic thoughts. So I just want to say... um, as a substantive, and I don't mean by substantive, I mean the difference between saying God is just, that's a descriptor. God is justice, that is a substantive. It's not saying just God acts this way, but God is this. God embodies this. There is only one substantive, one true substantive in the biblical text. Exodus 3.14 is far too slippery 
And I think it was used in that context by Augustine to push back against the Neoplatonics and say, no, 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 being is not over there. Being is here. It's right here in Christianity. Being is God. I'm I understand why he did that. Well, I'm basically saying... <laughs> What's the tie into love and truth? The tie into love and truth is that we're not looking with some kind of... Uh, we don't have two notions in the Bible where God is kind of a substantive. We do have, you know, Jesus saying as well in the Gospel of John, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Way, the truth, pardon me, and the life. Um, and I think overall, though, I would say that this notion of truth is a... God claims to, to, to be offering us to be presenting and to be embodying truth in some senses in its only way. So again, in an ancient Near Eastern context, there's this idea of not only do I not want you to associate with these other gods, there are no other gods. Right? So let's not be confused here, God would say to the Israelites. Um, these are no gods. And so you don't have the, you know, when, um, is it Elijah? is, is uh, working with the prophets of Baal and they're kind of having this competition. And he says, uh, you know, they say, well, you know, um, we will have our God um, start the fire on this, uh, this altar and you have your God start the fire on that altar and we'll see who wins. You know, and it's not like in that example that there's this little spark on the altar of the Baal, the prophets of Baal. There's, there's, there's nothing. And then Elijah, I, th- I think it is, uh, you know, heaps water. He's like, pour, pour more water, pour more water. Keep pouring water on my altar. Keep pouring water on the wood, drench the wood. And, and, you know, uh, Elijah, uh, calls out to God and God, you know, consumes the wood and consumes the water. Everything is consumed. So there's this sense in which, you know, truth is not only, um, presented in the Bible, but that God holds truth entirely. There are no other holders of truth, you know, and, and it, I have to be, I have to say that a little loosely because, you know, I want to come to our experience of God. You know, our ability to experience God is true. Um, so I guess on the one hand, that's how I would see it from love and truth. First of all, love is God's primary characteristic. And I, I, I would argue for that exegetically through the whole Bible. And second of all, the biblical text is constantly, constantly through everything it's doing, pointing to God as the locus of truth. But I would say on the other hand, in terms of experience, um, one of my pivotal experience of, of coming to, to know God was an experience of being, first of all, known very deeply. God acted in such a way that I was just, I was stunned. I thought, how, how, how is this, this is so perfectly you know, as an agnostic, as somebody who's not looking for God, somebody who's looking to get rid of God. And then out of nowhere, I have this incredibly powerful experience of being, on the one hand, deeply, truly known, on the other hand, deeply loved, and seeing how this has worked out in my life to undo the things in my past and to reform me. And, you know, it's much more particular that I'm giving it airtime right now right? There's a lot more involved. And I have tried through um, my graduate work to generalize out of my experience. Um, So when I say truth and love, there are a lot of details I'm not giving you. There's a lot of, in other words, you know, love, there's a lot of things that fall under love, like mercy, forgiveness, kindness, gentleness. There's a lot of things that fall under truth, like justice, honesty, um, 
maybe there's more under love than under truth. But that's interesting. Um, so, so those two are kind of the primary roll-ups. I think so, and I think every experience we have of God will, in some way, be redolent of those two things in varying degrees and in various presentations, depending upon who we are and what we need. Now, have you ever so, found? Have you ever doubted this or? come into contact with something that didn't fit neatly into either one? I don't know about fitting neatly. Um, like, is there I'm anything not... you're still trying to figure out or you're just like, uh, yeah, this works about 98% of the time, but there's this other 2% that I haven't figured out yet or I don't know what to do with. Like, where are you with this whole way of looking at this thing? I, um, in terms of the, the love and truth, truth and love, and I often phrase it as love and truth because I'm pushing back against this. Like I put love first and I don't mean to, in other words, oh, I don't see love as, as being more important, right? <laughs> right? But I have to make a call. And what I hear the church around me, the evangelical church, which more or less I'm evangelical, I am not mostly liberal, right? So I'm more conservative in my theology. I believe God's an entity. God exists. God's real. God's not an idea in my mind, which is more a liberal conception. I, I, I'm be, I know I'm being really rough, but let's just be kind of brief with it. Um, and so I'm mostly speaking back to evangelicals who mostly, by and large, prioritize truth over love. So when I'm saying it, I say it as love and truth. What I mean is, I mean the two of them together, right? I would give you a picture where they're side by side. And I know we tend to read left to right, but... That's interesting. You can't really say it in a sentence. You can't say them at the same time. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> So for me, it's love and truth, truth and love. That's, that's what's going on, right? And in terms of have I, have I found things that, uh, like, I, I guess I don't, I, the more I study, the more I look at the problems I'm seeing around me in terms of, you know, um, I think Darren Hufford, again, is, is a, he's a fantastic example. He, he really has nailed it on the head, you know, that, uh, got to have his, where does book go? Yeah, just a yeah. sidelight. We're currently working through Darren Hufford's book, Misunderstood God. In fact, we were supposed to discuss a couple chapters today. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we we ended up on this, which is totally great. Um, so, yeah, somewhere in the future, depending on when this airs versus when those episodes air, mm. you'll all be caught up. That's right. Well, on the back of his... Uh his uh, book called The Misunderstood God, in, in big type, it says, have you been lied to about God? And then the next line under that said, reads, could this be why the majority of Christians admit to being miserable and frustrated in their spiritual lives? Question mark. And I do find that there are a lot of people who are at least frustrated uh, and then confused. And, and, and there are some who, are, who may well be miserable. And I think the more I look at the problems and the difficulties such as Darren, uh, identifies, the more I read and I dig into some of the ways that Christianity has been understood and formulated by big thinkers like Augustine. You know, and, and I, I love Augustine. And the great thing about Augustine is he's written so much. Uh, put it this way. Augustine wrote, has written so much that at the Reformation, the Catholics said, he's on our side, and they were right. And the Protestants said, he's on our side, <laughs> they were right. So, so it's very easy. I recognize to say I like Augustine <laughs> and I ways. love a lot. Yeah, but yeah. Well, they did, and, and I am too. And not because they did, but but there are some things that I genuinely disagree with, uh, and and of course, there's a lot that I do agree with. But 
you know, when I look at some of these thinkers and I look at the progress of Christian thought in some of these uh, some of these areas, uh, I am really struck. It's not just me and my thinking. It's not just these very general, easy statements I've made about the Bible, like you know, love is the only substantive. I'm coming to you with incredibly surface um, descriptions or 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 declarations about why it is that I hold this view without diving really deep into looking at some of the the, the issues that at an academic level um, I have just found, you know, again and again, it cycles back to this. It cycles back to um, too much of a focus on, on the biblical text, not enough focus on listening to your neighbor and loving, you know, when I, when I was looking at um, um, the uh, tension and the opposition between um, Western um, academic um, exegetes, so professional exegetes working uh, at universities, versus, let's say, um, uh, the exegesis by liberal theologians, or pardon me, liberation theologians, and liberation theology is a movement that began in the 60s with people like uh, Gustavo Gutierrez uh, in Latin America, and has since branched out quite a bit. And, uh, you know, I'm not without my reservations about what they, uh, how they view things, but it's this idea that experience is incredibly important. And yet somehow Christians, um, evangelicals have managed to marginalize their brothers, their brothers and sisters who have lived through some incredibly difficult things. You know, our lives in North America are pretty darn easy. When you consider what was going on in Central and South America uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and just how uh, the economic programs that we really held them under were destroying them. And some of the understandings that they arrived at, these people, these mostly Catholic priests who were trying to lead the, the communities down there, and just the, the presence of God and the experience of God. You know what? Anytime somebody says to me, uh, with with something that sounds to have any credibility, that you know they've undergone difficult experiences, that's worthy of my respect. When they tell me that they have had profound experiences of God in the midst of these experiences, that's prof- that's worthy of my attention and my respect. I want to give them a lot of attention. I want to hear what they have to say. I may not agree with them. It may not seem credible, but particularly where it does, I've really got to think hard. I've really got to let that impact me. And I think, again, this ties back into something you and I talked about before. Our churches are not places where dialogue is modeled. We do not teach people to dialogue. We teach them to dispute. It goes back to this idea that you mentioned. We're no good with two. We're no good with tension. We want one. We want a winner. And you know what? When it comes to somebody who's proposing an idea that seems to not, not to be Christian, we know who the winner's got to be. It's us. And it becomes us and them. And the more that I work with these ideas, the more that I center on this um, or focus on truth and love, love and truth, um, the more I'm seeing that, you know, these elements are so missing. More love and truth, much easier for me to listen to my neighbor, to hear what they have to say. I can maintain a critical stance. I may at the end of the day disagree. But I'm there to engage because I value that person and I, I, I value their views of God and their experiences of God as much as my own. At the end of the day, I may think mine are more valuable or more valid, 
But just because I read the Bible in a certain way with a certain methodology. So when somebody comes to me and says, you know, I had this experience of God. And the first question I ask them isn't, you know, well, what was your exegesis there? <laughs> you know, I'm not going to go and hold my background. You know, and I'm no great exegete, right? Anybody who's, who's, who's good with Greek is going to know, oh my gosh, this guy's like, you know, he's, he's, he's a pile of rust in terms of his Greek. Yeah. He doesn't have any Hebrew. No, mm, not too good. Right. Got's got some bare, you know, rudiments of, of Hebrew. That's it. So, um, but in other words, I'm not going to judge that person on the basis of what their, like, how their skill set may or may not match up in terms of what I value. I do value exegesis. I do value coming to the Bible as an informed reader. But you know what? I still want to integrate and, and, and uh, dialogue with that person because maybe they've got something that I can learn. And I guess there's just a... I know I'm going to have to do a lot more to satisfy you. I know that it isn't satisfying me and I wish that I could wrap up the whole love and truth in a couple of paragraphs and, and present it to you. And, you know, maybe that's just, uh, it's one of those big goals on the horizon. No, but I think we'll keep coming back to it. And I would encourage okay. any of our listeners, these make great questions, great discussion topics. And the in the ironic thing might be too, you might think, oh, I'm going to send these two guys on the internet a question and, you know... They'll they'll answer it or maybe they'll discuss this topic and wow, you know, it'll be really helpful for me, but you know, they're just going through the motions. No way. I would say in just the limited interactions we've had so far with our listeners, I feel like I'm getting tons out of it. And I'm it's mm -hmm. hard to I mean, it's probably a, a flip of a coin to decide like who's really getting more out of it. I'd say we're mm -hmm. I'd say it's mutually beneficial to both parties. Mm -hmm. So push us on stuff. Ask questions. Help us have the dialogue. We, you know, the the other thing that we're finding too with the the listener feedback we get is it pushes us in directions we had never considered, never thought of, the farthest things from our minds. Mm -hmm. So, yes, this episode is a perfect example of if we hadn't received an email, we wouldn't be having this conversation. No, exactly. And, and if I may, if I could close, I want to close with a question. Do it. I'm like, and this is a question for you. Uh-oh. <laughs> and it's a question for anybody out there. Do I have to answer it now? No, 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 no. Okay. I don't want you to answer it now. Don't answer <laughs> it now. Take it away. Take it away and, and kind of chew on it. But what I've said, and what I, I guess what I'm arguing for, is that love and truth are co-central to the character of God and therefore to the essence of Christianity and also to the nature of of human being and to what it is as a human to live abundantly. It's not all that's required, but these are the essential kernel things. And I'm going to throw the question back to you and anybody else that wants, what would you put in there instead? And I mean, not only what would you put in there, but what would you put in there and why? In other words, in other words, if I were to say, yeah, your love and truth are those are pretty good, but I would say it's this and this other thing instead. Or I would say it's these three things. Yeah, like a lot of Christians would say, oh, you know, it's worship. The the the, the main reason for humans existing is, is to worship, worship God. That's why we're yeah. here. And you'd you'd be leaving out a little bit if that was your only answer, because I'd want to okay, well then what does that mean about God? What what is God's kind of main 
you know, and, and some people would not want to answer that. And I would say, well, I think, I think we live with it. We live with an assumption of, of, of who God essentially is, whether we formulate it or not. I think it's there. And I think it's part of what we're seeing when we read these books and we're reacting to it is that certain authors have different central themes, notions, characteristics. And I find myself, and I think I see you, backing away from some of those and saying, no, 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 this does not feel good. And so, yeah, I throw that out there as a question. If, if it's not love and truth, what is it? How would you formulate it? What, what does it look like in your own life? If you kind of just kind of distill what you do, how you view things and how you react. I like it. Leave us a comment in the, uh, on the website for this episode. Or if you don't like web comments, send us an email, feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. And if you don't like either of those, we even have a survey, untanglingchristianity.com slash survey, where we're just trying to get a better feel for uh, what's going on out there and, and how we're coming across, etc. Nice. Cue the spooky music. Spook away! You've been listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on iTunes or over at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 25. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available at the website. Music on this podcast is made available by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.